Welcome back to the Two Minute Time Lord podcast, and this is the second in a series of episodes that will make you miss the days when I only did episodes for two minutes. Uh, It's time dilation times two. It is my second Series 9 review, and it's also a bit of a crossover. I'd like to welcome to the podcast uh, my guests for today, Eric Stadnick and Kyle Anderson of Doctor Who the Writer's Room. Hello, gentlemen. Hello there. Hi, Chip. Thanks for having us on. Well, thank you both for agreeing to um, dilute your podcast brand a little bit. Yeah, that's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's completely it. It's not at yeah, all. Yeah, we don't want anyone to else to listen to us. So no, only people no. who know about our show already. Exactly. <laughs> the thing I will say about our brand is that it's tricky because we generally do sort of very focused conversations. And so I'm curious how this evening goes, but you should tell them what we're doing here, Chip. Well, we have just had a time dilation episode of the podcast with Petra Mayer and Rachel Donner talking about Series 9 in general. But I'm a fan of the writing of Doctor Who. There are writing fans. There are production fans. There are actor fans. Where Doctor Who really works for me is or or fails to work typically is the writing not so much the execution but the writing and who better to talk about series nine than the gentleman behind doctor who the writer's room which is a podcast that discusses the writing of doctor who albeit uh not the current series no that's right we we do exclusively the classic series which you'd think hey that wouldn't take all that long. It's actually taking us forever, which is pretty good. Because <laughs> I actually don't want our Says podcast Kyle, to be who finished. Is sick and death of talk, talking to me once a month about this. <laughs> well, you know, we only, we basically, uh, we pick a, a writer or two to talk about every month. And sometimes, like this last year, we talked about two writers. The uh, Terry, Terry Nation. Nation Death March. <laughs> yes, we talked about Terry Nation and Malcolm Hulk for seven months straight. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you just get tired of talking about the same guy. And they're almost always guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true enough. 90%. Uh, one of my favorite moments in, as a podcast listener was uh, a couple of months ago when Eric said, if you don't like Kinda because you can't handle the snake effects you don't deserve it or you don't deserve good doctor who yeah if you can't handle if you hate kinda because of the bad giant snake you don't deserve good doctor who that was that was a delicious and provocative statement considering that there are probably (laughs) loads and loads of people out there who really really do not like kinda tell me a little bit about uh what you two care about when it comes to the writing of Doctor Who episodes? Is it the craft? Is it the message behind the stories? This is a really broad question, but how do you define good writing when it comes to Doctor Who? Well, I mean, I guess for me, it's, it's kind of, it's a mixture of factors. If um, I like a good kind of uh, is, plot is very important. Let's talk. <laughs> let's start at the beginning of writing. Plot is very important, but you also need to have kind of, you know, if plot is the, the trunk of the Christmas tree, then you have, you know, little things that branch out that make it better. And then you have ornaments to hang on it that are like, you know, good dialogue or like funny moments or, you know, great speeches like we had this season and things like that. But I think ultimately it has to have a good plot that makes sense and doesn't like for me, doesn't take too many convenient ways out because that's the sure most surefire way to get me to just be like, oh, all right, whatever. If, if, you know, you create a situation, the writer creates a situation for themselves and then they get out of it super lazily. I think that's, you know. 
when you read Agatha Christie or, you know, the great mystery novelists, very few of them have this amazing twisty narrative. And then all of a sudden it's just like, Oh, uh, it was a dream. It was all a dream is my least favorite thing. And I'm sure we'll get to that one episode this season. (laughs) I know exactly uh, where you're going. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a structural thing to me. Like it's, it's a fun, it's really great episodes. Um, and great stories, you know, if we're talking about classic series and this season, because there was all, um, uh, a bunch of two parters, if it fits together and you can see how it works, but you don't really maybe know how it all works until you get to the end of it. I love stuff like that. I love seeing the construction of a story via, you know, scenes and words and things like that. It's, 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 it's like looking at the matrix code to me. It's like, Oh yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, and I would say good writing for Doctor Who, especially in terms of the classic series, but also in terms of the modern series, is not that different from good writing, period, full stop. There needs to be, as Kyle said, there needs to be the underlying structure that sort of supports everything else. Um, this is something that, that Terrence Dix, for example, was really great about is his, the structure of his stories, the way the stories sort of rise and fall and the beats and where they happen sort of all serve to elevate the story and almost sort of make this viewer feel as if they're not watching a story, but they're actually watching something unfold as opposed Mm to, you know, bad writing often reminds you that it's there in a way that good writing doesn't. And so anytime you can sort of feel the writer doing something behind the scenes when you're watching it, that's a problem. And that's true, you know, and I, I would think in anything, but especially in Doctor Who, like it should feel like you're, you're just watching and having this experience. And then afterwards you can go in and sort of look at the insides and sort of start dissecting it. And in terms of having message, you know, some Doctor Who writers are sort of almost violently anti having a message at times. It seems <laughs> right. they really just want to do whatever, but a lot of the really good ones do find ways of having the, I won't say the morals of the story, but sort of the moral inflections and implications of their stories reflect on issues of the time. Because even though I don't like saying it very often, Doctor Who is kind of a science fiction show. And science fiction, when it's good, (laughs) does speak to concerns of the time. That is the purpose of science fiction. Mm. If, If science fiction were just about having spaceships, then any old idiot could write a science fiction court story because all it is is a spaceship shoot things, pew, pew, pew. Yeah. But that's not what science fiction actually is meant to be and not when it is at its best. And so when Doctor Who is at its best, I do feel that it speaks to something. And it could be a political issue. It could be a sort of economic question. It could be a sort of philosophical idea. Doctor Who tends to do a lot of the philosophical ideas, actually, which I think is part of the reason why I'm so drawn to it. And certainly modern Doctor Who has used these sort of stories about, you know, the sort of ludicrous premise in a way to deal with a lot of interpersonal relationships, which is another sort of thing that science fiction can really reflect back at us is the way we react with each other in our own lives and we sort of live our own lives and whether we're doing that the way we think we should be. In a lot of ways, I think Doctor Who is like uh, the current trend of young adult literature. Um, All of these Big statements um, and big ideas at its best, um, drama and heartbreak and all of that, packaged in a way that younger audiences can appreciate. And I think that's one thing that makes Doctor Who special. And I think that sort of uh, sort of relates to 
Eric, your, your your reluctance to really label Doctor Who as science fiction. It's it's its own animal almost. I, I think that's right. And I think I think that's actually a really good parallel with sort of like the your Hunger Games is in your mazes runners and all your other sort of dystopian things and all the they're all speaking about the adolescent experience in different ways. And I would say Doctor Who is at its best when it's speaking about the human experience and the reason I sort of don't like putting any sort of label on it is that is I think it is I will actually say it is unique in its ability to do that without seeming to do that. If you watch a show that is very clearly on its surface trying to teach you big moral things and make you look at the value of friendship and love, it's going to, you're going to feel maybe removed from it a distance. Whereas Doctor Who can do it via the doctor and the companion of their secondary characters and kind of do it under the radar. So the message gets through while you're watching the fancy colors almost. And at the end, you come out having not only had a sort of, emotional visceral experience but you have had an intellectual one as well and they both can gone hand in hand and that means that sort of the entire family can have this fascinating conversation sort of internally about what matters in life and what it means to be a good person which that's really heady stuff for saturday tea time and i, I sort of like that Every it's this this show is very much like a writer's show i, I mean like i remember when i first started watching it um well, it isn't necessarily uh, exclusive to Doctor Who, but I was always struck by it was, you know, Doctor Who, the name of the episode or story by whatever writer. And yeah, which never right happens here the in the U.S. Absolutely. Like the writer, you know, will get his name or his or her name up at the front, you know, during but in the middle of credits. You know, it's never right at it's it's never the the title by this writer. And that always spoke to me because it's like you're getting this person's point of view and really doctor who is is super universal as far as the way a story is constructed you know it's the doctor and the companion arrive at a place or they walk into a place or you know something happens they have there's issues to solve along the way eventually they win and then they leave like it's you know it's the lone ranger it's kung fu it's like just just whatever it's like coming in and out of situations and leaving but around that they can just you know put fill it with so many different um ideas and different types of stories and like you can get the the writer's point of view you know this one writer's point of view one week and it's a completely different type of episode to the one that comes afterwards you know we were talking about malcolm hulk malcolm hulk is one of those writers who wrote a lot about the real world he wrote a lot about politics he wrote a lot about you know under the guise of you know uh monsters and silurians and things like that but then you also had writers like robert holmes who was just like i just want to tell a you know a scary slash funny kind of uh uh show you know type of thing and so you have all these different writers who are doing different things and like we get to the you know unfortunately uh, or or maybe fortunately like you get oh no it's this guy's story this week or something like that and, and then the flip side of that is like oh i'm so excited for next week it's a mm-hmm. it's a peter harness episode or you know something like that where you're you know the kind of stories that they are going to write and that's what i love about especially classic doctor who because so few people actually wrote for the show you get a huge like breadth, which is kind of what we do on our show. Like you get a breadth of what they did. And so you can kind of like analyze everything that they did as a whole within the framework of Dr. Who. And I think that type of stuff really like excites me as someone who just enjoys both science fiction writing and fantasy writing and, and just writing in general. I'd like to ask a couple more quick questions before we get into the meat of uh, our conversation about Series 9, just to sort of establish your uh, perspectives uh, for my audience who may not have listened to 
Doctor Who the writer's room and if they haven't shame on them. So let's <laughs> say that let's say that we have let's say that we have a mutual friend who is sitting on a couch in let's say Edmonton. <laughs> And okay. mm-hmm. let's say that he's watching a television show. Um, let's say he has a wife and he's watching the show with her. And it's a very well-directed episode of this television show. And he looks over at her and says, you see, name of spouse, it's not always important that it be written well. Is this hypothetical person a Visigoth or a Philistine? <laughs> I, I neither. People are allowed to have their own opinions, no matter how wrong they may be. The and I'm pretty sure that is, person's just Canadian. Like, yeah, I think, I think the yeah, yeah. So, um, the the way I would answer that hypothetical conundrum is, okay. So what you're saying is is that the story the show is telling you is partly being done by a visual cues and music choices and things like that, which is entirely legitimate. Um, writing is not the final step in television. It is the first step, however, and is the most important because it lays the foundation. It is possible for really good direction to elevate a solid script into something amazing. Good direction, though, can't save a legitimately bad script unless what the good direction does is actually to fundamentally rewrite the script in process, <laughs> which I think we are aware that that sometimes happens. But then that's that's a situation where you're sort of looking at it and like, OK, well, this is what the script says and this is what ended up on TV. So somewhere along the line, the director or the producer or somebody did a bunch of rewrites to save it. And that's always simply possible. I would also say that the, like that sort of to go back to what I was saying before, there are different pleasures and there are pleasures of the eye and those can be largely done by a director, but there are pleasures of the ear and pleasures of the mind and pleasures of the heart, which I think much more easily accessed by the writer and the stories and the characters, which the director usually has fairly little control over. I mean, yeah, you, 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 you look at a, something that's very well directed. This is not this is going to be a very blanket statement that it's not true hundred percent of the time, but, and you can go, wow, that's really, that's really well done. You can, it's, it's more visual. You can see the craftsmanship involved and you can go, that's great. That's, you know, I appreciate that amount of thing, but if you, if you like, if the story doesn't click with you or the characters don't click with you and, or, you know, a TV show like this, the character, the characters basically have clicked with everybody by this point. But like, if, if you're just not buying the situation, like I don't, care how well it's directed personally like you know i think there are movies that are very very well directed that i just cannot be bothered to watch again because they're so like the story doesn't make sense or the script is you know ham-fisted or anything like that and um yeah i think i think like eric was saying everybody has their own pleasures everybody has things that they enjoy about a different thing and that's you know that's what doctor who all is across the board but uh as uh, personally from a personal stance, I, I think, uh, you know, exactly what Eric said, like the story and the script is the first step. And I don't care how, how it looks beyond that. If I can't get over that first step, all I'm doing is kind of just, you know, falling up a stairs. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, 
bad metaphors are my forte. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if the story has characters acting in unbelievable ways and has ludicrous plot twists, I don't care how shiny and how many lens flares and things you're going to pop on the screen. Yeah. I don't care how well paced it is. I don't care even about how the actors sell it. If fundamentally it is untrue, if the situations are untrue, then it's, it's unsalvageable. And, you know, there, I could name 20 examples of sort of scripts that are really problematic that directors make much better than they are, but they never save them altogether. You always go, oh, the script really let this one down. And that's true of movies, that's true of TV shows, that's true of everything. Yeah. Now, you two have some fairly simpatico perspectives on what makes good classic Doctor Who. Um, Great mind, it, think alike. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's rare, actually, listening to DWTWR to hear you just absolutely at opposite ends of the spectrum. But surely you occasionally hear from fans who say, I can't believe you like that story. It is such a bad story. It's so badly written. Is this an art or a science? Um, is it objective or subjective? Are there objectively good stories, objectively bad stories? And if I don't like what happened to Clara in Face the Raven? Am I more likely to say that's a bad story? <sighs> mm, I, well, actually, I think like for us, the, the opposite is more often true, which is that if we if we come down on the side of we do not like a story that a bunch of people met, a lot of people like, we hear about that far more than, yes. oh, oh, I hate, you know, Kinda or whatever. Very few people actually said that to us. Uh, granted, that was episode two of our podcast. So <laughs> a long time ago, but um you know, it's definitely everyone has an emotional reaction to episodes. And, and you know, if, if people were unhappy that Clara died, maybe they would say that that episode was badly written. But I, I feel like, you know, there again, if it's true to the character or true to the st- the plot that you've laid out, I, I feel like that isn't the writer's fault. That's that's the it's not even the story's fault. I mean, it, there's no fault involved. But um, I forgot the other half of the question that you asked, which was... Uh, which was <laughs> sort of objective or subjective. I, oh, that's you know, right. It's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, our shared mutual friend, Paul Cornell, who is a lovely person, I think has been on all of our shows at various times. That's right. Is doing his four blogs of Christmas right now. And he today blogged that, you know, he loved the writer's room part and that we were brilliant and handsome and wonderful and kind. And But he also said we often were surprisingly against the grain. And I think that's something like Kyle was saying. Yeah, you, you're right, Chip. Kyle and I are often simpatico, but we're often simpatico against the sea of everyone else who disagrees with us about things. Yeah. Um, but it is rare. The reaction I do see when people think we're just wrong is, you know, I still don't agree with you guys, but you made some really good points. You're going to make me have to reevaluate this story. We get a lot of, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that because of your thoughts on it we burst a lot of bubbles i think the the nostalgia bubble we burst quite often yeah and that's what and that's the sort of exact key transition point that nostalgia question between the class and that's part of the reason why i think why we only do the classic series knew who the nostalgia bubble is sort of we're all living in it right now kyle and i can't even be objective about new like there's no objectivity to be had it's just not it's too emotional right now for all of us um you know are all well, of our opinions wait a, about- wait, wait, wait a wait a wait a submarine the entire podcast <laughs> we're about to do man <laughs> well, I, I, it's, but it, I think it's kind of important because 
you know, I've been thinking about this since we scheduled it. I'm like, how am I going to think about this stuff in season nine and really not just sort of sound like a churlish jerk for dissecting things or just rah-rah things because I liked them? And that's really, really hard when you're still very much in the heat of it. I think we're just now getting to the point where people can start looking up relatively objectively at like the early years of new who people can actually really start going back and re reappraising some of those episodes. And that's been 10 years now. You know, if you did that five years ago, it would just, it just wasn't going to happen. And so doing season nine, while I'm really excited to try, my feeling is if I listen back to this in 10 years, I'm going to be like, Oh, Eric, you were so dumb. You were taken in by this. or you didn't see this or you let your feelings get in the way too much and didn't see what was going on. Um, because especially with a series of Doctor Who, it's very easy to sort of let warm feelings about some episodes carry over to episodes that don't deserve them, or bad feelings about some episodes carry over to other episodes that don't deserve them. Um, and, and so and, sort of everything yeah. gets taken as a whole. I find in my job, my, my job, luckily for myself, is that is I partly get to be a film critic, which is super fun and great for me. But I, I will sometimes go back and read... Uh, reviews of mine from a couple of months ago, maybe, you know, even as much as a couple of years ago and go, boy, I I do not think that anymore or something like that. You know, sometimes people will retweet a a review of mine from a long time ago. I don't know. You know, sometimes that happens. You're like, (laughs) really 2015 or 2013 or something like that. But anyway, then I'll read it again and just be like, boy, yep, I don't think this anymore at all. Um, and, And I think that's that kind of we're in the bubble, as Eric was saying, like, you have to let kind of things sit. And I do think for me anyway, I kind of try to flush each episode um, because I also have to review them for my, my job. So I try to attack each one individually. That being said, if I'm really enjoying a season, chances are I'm going to continue to really enjoy that season and really, unless it really takes a nosedive. Well, we've preambled the heck out of this. Let's dive, <laughs> let's, let's we dive sure in. Let's uh, talk about uh series nine and, you two, as as I said, you know, you two have some really simpatico feelings about classic Doctor Who. But uh, let's talk about Series Nine specifically. Just the the broad question um, with all of the different writers here. Um, you still have a you have a singular showrunner, and it's his responsibility both to set up an overall um, arc for the series and also to choose the writers who are going to execute and then to rewrite them. So I think it is viable to talk about an entire series and the writing in an entire series. So generally speaking, how well written did you think Series 9 was? In general, I would say quite well written. Yeah. It feels, you know, and you can, I feel like every season I am kind of in a glow a little bit, but like there were definitely parts of Series 8 that I did not enjoy for various reasons. But this series, I really felt that Maybe it's because there were, you know, relatively fewer stories. There were, you know, same amount of episodes, but because everything was kind of a two-parter for the most part, it everything kind of flowed into each other. So you kind of didn't have uh, as much discrepancy. Um, for me, you know, there were 12 episodes. 11 were good to great and one was not. Uh, and that's a pretty, that's like the best average that you could possibly hope for for a show like this, which definitely has peaks and valleys. Um, so overall... Um, I was very impressed by, by all of the writing and, and, uh, you know, it, it was a good mixture of kind of newer writers to the series and, and, you know, established figures who have, who've written quite a few times before. 
Um, and that I always think, you know, you, you can tell the people who hadn't written for the show before it, not because it was bad. It was just different. It was not mm-hmm. the same type of stuff you've seen. And that really added a lot of um, freshness as the, as the season went along. Yeah. I think it's what I find really interesting about, about looking at the writing, especially for, for modern who is that with the sort of generally there's so many one, essentially just one part stories, just one off 45 minute teleplays. Um, that in that span, usually something has to give and you either lose characterization or, and this is what happens a lot, the plot is very muddled or sort of almost non-existent at times and just becomes essentially a series of things or there's sort of not a lot of thematic resonance or often something suffers. And by making the strategic, creative, whatever decision it was that Stephen Moffat made with this season to have essentially almost all two-parters with very few exceptions or at least have linked stories it meant that there was time there just was time to go into the supporting characters more to sort of build up the complications of what was going on and why it mattered and what was interesting you know i think people will debate the quality of a lot of these episodes forever but i think the one thing that we won't be able to say about them is like oh, well, they didn't really have the time to develop what they wanted to do. They all had that space. How they used that space, that sort of temporal space on our TV screens, was very different, I think. But a thing that got said about Modern Who a lot was, oh, it all feels too rushed. And it's like this entire season, Moffat's like, okay, <laughs> we're not rushing anything. Anymore. We're only going to tell five stories. You know, or <clears throat> we're only going to tell six stories or whatever. And here they all are. And they're all going to have movie length, essentially time to play out. Stretched over two episodes. Go for it. Do something. Do something. Show me what you can do with that. Uh, of course, though, he took two of those two-part stories for himself. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, you know, and that's always the problem with modern Doctor Who. Not problem, but the trick about it is so much of it is written by the showrunner that you find other writers trying to plug in holes in someone else's plan already. Mm. Yeah, I, you look at The Mag- uh, Magician's Apprentice, and the Doctor doesn't show up for... 20 minutes maybe a little less than that yeah uh, out of a 45 minute episode it, it takes a long time to get going and and not to the episode's detriment i don't think there's a lot of it feels more much more cinematic that way not you know not just because it's very well directed all of these episodes i think are very well directed but that you have the time it feels more like a movie because you have time to allow things to happen you have these these longers where you can have clara and kate stewart talk about stuff and then clara and missy talk about stuff and talk about theme and talk about plot and blah 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 and then go find the doctor and he's doing whatever he's doing and there's a lot more room for discovery which i think is really great you can't be awed by the doctor coming in on a tank playing an electric guitar without those 20 minutes of script ahead of it exactly because the the whole of the first bit of the the episode is where's the doctor you know people watch doctor who some other people that we know that we will again go nameless go i watched doctor who for the doctor i watched doctor who for the doctor i will not i would you know i I, i'm always hard to sell on dr light episodes because i it's not (laughs) mr who who shall remain nameless it's doctor who i could i I want to see the doctor yeah and and when you have something like that which is technically not a dr light episode but an episode that allows the doctor to make a grand entrance like that i think that's really cool i you know everybody's favorite character in uh, the third man is harry lime 
but he does he's in like three scenes and he doesn't yeah. show up until two thirds of the way through the movie because everybody's talking about him through the first two thirds of the movie. Uh, he is the most important character, even though he's not on screen. And I feel like the magician's apprentice allowed that to happen with the doctor. And then it also gave, you know, not a whole lot of time on Scarrow once you got there, but then you have a whole other episode to spend time on Scarrow between the doctor and Davros. And it's like, it's allowing time to have basically two completely separate types of stories being told all at once. And, uh, and then you can kind of digress and, and change the things a little bit. And I think that really helped a lot of these stories, which would have suffered greatly. I think if you tried to do the Davros and the doctor re-meeting with Missy involved in one episode, that would have been absurd and it would just yeah. not have worked. Yeah. I, I think, I think that first two parts are sort of set the tone in a number of ways. <clears throat> the other way it sort of really set the tone for me was this doctor, this, this doctor is played by Peter Capaldi, who is 12th or 14th or whatever you want to call him is uncomfortable with the mantle of the doctor in a way that we haven't seen in a long time, if ever before. I think what's really, it's sort of, you know, and I always say you can't tell what Moffat's playing at until he's done. And we finally are at the end of the season. So we know kind of what he was playing at in one way. And we know that for a lot of the season, the thing that we kept talking about was how does the doctor win? That kept, I, and this occurred very early on. Is like, how does he win? You know, Missy and Clara have an entire conversation about what is it that makes the doctor survive time and time again. It's that he's always thinking about how he's going to win. Um, and this entire season was essentially the doctor winning again and again and again in ways that maybe he shouldn't have won, that winning wasn't the best thing. And so at the end, Clara's last message to him is not go and win, it's go and be a doctor which is different. And I kind of loved that this entire season was in a way about the doctor needing reminding that the doctor doesn't win. The doctor saves. That's different. The doctor does what he can. He doesn't stride triumphantly across the universe, making immortals because he can, because it's like other doctors would have let a shielder die. And should have let a shielder die, arguably. But this doctor refuses to lose even a little bit. And that proves to be something that is essential to this characterization of him, but also really, really upsetting and really problematic for the character in the show. And it's something that this initial two-parter kind of sets up. But it's not what you think the two-parter is about when you watch it, but it kind of is. It's what is he going to do with young Davros in the field? What's he going to do? Is yeah, he going to save him? Is he going to win? What's he going to do? And when you have with these two two part episodes that we mostly have, you get the opportunity for something that the classic series did amazingly well, which is cliffhangers. And uh, the cliffhanger to the Magician's Apprentice is him back on the field with Young Davros. Whole, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to exterminate, and then we don't come back to that until the very end of yeah. the next episode. And that's such a smart, smart thing to do is you set up, oh my God, he's going to do that. And it's not a cheat because he still nope. does that. We just don't know the context yet. And that's something that I think Moffat does. In, like I've always loved about Moffat is that he, you don't know what, um, you know, <laughs> you don't know what the hell's going on until you know what the hell's going on, which I think is, yeah. is one of my favorite things about when he is firing at all on all cylinders. So, you know, arguably sometimes he is not. Um, but I think this season really allowed him to, to do that a little bit more. 
yeah, I think if we if we look at the other Moffat stories, which is Heaven Set and Hell Bent, obviously Hell Bent uses that same idea. We have the Doctor with the guitar in the diner, which turns out to be a TARDIS, but you don't know any of that. What you see is the Doctor and the guitar, and the waitress is clearly Clara, and it's like, okay, is this one of the other Claras made by her jumping in the Doctor's time stream? Because they clearly don't know each other, it seems, or someone's pretending that, and, and you're like, okay, were they both giant liars? Are they mm-hmm. undercover for some reason? And then you find out that the doctor's plan is to mind wipe Clara. Like, he's like, oh my god, no, he wiped Clara. That's horrible. And then the final shoe falls at the end, and it's the doctor who doesn't know who Clara is. And <laughs> she runs off with me and their TARDIS together. And that is, that's one of those times where Moffat shows you the scene. He shows you exactly what's happening. You just don't know what's happening because he hasn't told you all the backstory yet. He hasn't right. filled it in yet. You don't, you, you, you see what's happening, but you don't see why it's happening. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. And and the understanding of those little insert scenes with Lemonade changes every time you come back to them. You think something else is going on, and you're wrong every single time. That's clever. uh, In my, you know, freshman year of college, I took a play script analysis class, and we took a book, I read a little thin book called Backwards and Forwards, and basically what the gist of that is, is if you read something forwards, uh, you understand, you see what's going on. But if you read it backwards, you understand why it's going on. Mm -hmm. And Moffat is able to to do both at the same time like he shows you what you need to know when you need to know it but he also sets up all these things that you're not sure about yet and then once you find out everything that you've just seen completely changes and then you can go back and watch it a second time and just and and you're keyed into that stuff I I get exhilarated by that stuff and it, and it's not twist for twist sake it's not oh I was it it doesn't cheat at all because uh, if you do that and you're cheating and you know every if if you've seen movies where oh it's all a dream or oh he you know he was the bad guy the whole time or something like that like that is so you just feel sick afterwards or i do you're just <laughs> like oh what i just wasted my time watching this episode or this movie or whatever but yeah he he doesn't do that he shows you everything lining up and then tells you why it's happening and i think i, I love it i love it to bits when he does that <laughs> now we had a whole bunch of other writers involved in this thing and i'm curious to moffat aside i'm curious which episode you thought was simply the best written of the series um the best non-moffat uh script that we had i think that's uh gotta be zygon inversion invasion by peter harness although stephen moffat wrote some amount of the zygon inversion because his name is on it um in terms of writing in terms of doing what we were talking about, two-parters allow you to do, which is great cliffhangers, which is going more into the backstories, going more into the side characters, exploring the themes that Zygon Two-Parter by Peter Harness, I think, makes the best use of that. Um, the the other actual two-parters written by one writer, which was uh, the Jamie Matheson Under the Lake. No, sorry, the um, Toby Woodhouse Toby Under House, the Lake yeah. Before the Flood. And then the other writers would have had one-offs um, or connected stories. Yeah, thematic one-offs. Thematic more more one-offs. like what we've what we've been used to in Moffat two-parters, which was not actually two-parters, but sort of linked separate stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas after you know whatever the reasoning was, I think it was probably right. Stephen Moffat looked at Kill the Moon and said, "I'm going to give this guy two full two full episodes and let him go to town." And he did something brilliant, I think. 
Mm-hmm. And he made he made it. He basically it's a it's a third doctor type of story, and that that's not just because Unit is in it. It's 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 that it's that kind of early seventies um, attention to the world around us. It, it's, it's a Mac so, Hawk story. It's a Mac yeah, Hawk it's, story. Yeah, um, it's a about, morality play. It's yep. about pre- you know it's it's so prescient and it's so of the moment and it's so timeless and everything. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree that those are fantastic episodes and that's the only really true two-parter of the bunch uh, that because it it completely you know follow immediately the cliffhanger just you you find out the outcome of that cliffhanger whereas even moffat's two-parters the cliffhanger then leads to a digression at the beginning and then you kind of work your way back to where the cliffhanger left off the analogies that were set up in the zygon two-parter um you know they could they really couldn't have been more blatant um it was you know it was the european refugee crisis absolutely it was um it was isis isis and radicalism and things like that and i kind of thought that a couple of weeks later paris happened Mm -hmm. and I couldn't help thinking that they might have actually had to pull those episodes if the timing had been reversed. That story that story spoke to me so clearly before that incident, and then current events happened. Is it a good story because it was so timely, or I almost I almost feel like it's almost uncomfortable to watch anymore because there's a sense of optimism in the doctor's final speech that I felt and got that I have a little bit more difficulty relating to now. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned that doctor's final speech and it's been memed and quoted and you, Paul McGann's done it and everything. It's great. Don't everyone hate me at once. It's not actually very good writing. It's a great monologue, but the scene doesn't work quite because it's just the doctor talking forever and no one else doing anything. And it's not the doctor at a podium giving a lecture where everyone's supposed to be listening to him. He is in a room that has a good number of aliens who want him to be dead. And no one is making any moves against him while he gives this very lengthy talk. And you can say, oh, well, they're all spellbound by his words, which is what the story would have us believe. But because the story is so closely a parallel to modern life and modern events, we know that that's not how these things actually work. And so the entire ending feels overly optimistic, I would say. It gives us the idea that there is an Osgood box. If only we could figure out what the Osgood box was, we could save this entire situation. And it's from that moment where the script starts to go, starts to be like, okay, we've built this really tangled, disastrously naughty issue. We got to get ourselves out of it somehow. And the way we get ourselves out of it is by the doctor convincing the head Zygon. All the other Zygons under Bonnie apparently decide to stand down, which, no, not how these things work. You know, when you're talking about people fighting for ideology and identity, a speech, even a very good speech by a very smart person, is not going to actually change the outcome that much. And while I love that speech, I think it's much more applicable to sort of traditional 
multinational, multi-party warfare. You know, that's the kind of speech you give on the outbreak of World War One, where mm. it's like a bunch of countries about to go to war for no good reason. And just or say, even the Cold do- War, like when everybody's fingers are on, you know, hovering over the button, but it's for- it's superpowers. It's superpowers. You know? Yeah. Why that? But when what you're fighting is ideologies and people who feel like their voices aren't being heard and identities that are conflicting with each other and people who just think that the world in general is not the way it ought to be, a speech doesn't change that. Yeah. And that's, and that's really – yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. And it's, that's, that's why sort of as brilliant as that moment was and as much as I loved that it had a happy ending, I was like – that's where I. That's where I stopped buying it. That's where I stopped buying it. But that moment. That moment wasn't enough to kill. You know, it's still. It's still your favorite non Moffat. Uh, oh, completely. script of the year. It's. It's one of those times where you look at it and be like, if it were like a Torchwood story, if it were like Children of Earth, it would have gone a different way. That's yeah. a really good point. But it's a Doctor Who story, so at some point the good side has to win, and the good side is peace. The good side is people listening to each other. That has to win out. It just it had been such a resonant story before then that to then sort of do a slightly cop outy sort of ending just felt like eh, okay, but I don't I don't blame them. I don't blame Peter Harness and Stephen Moffat for being like, We gotta get out of this. We've got, we we've gotta be family TV. Exactly. Yeah. Well that to me is what makes it feel like you know, from that moment forward, it it, st- it stops feeling like an early seventies you know, Pertwee era thing, because you look at the Silurians, it doesn't have a happy ending. The doctor gives a similar speech. Yeah. And he thinks he's, he's convinced them. He's like, I've okay. This is, this is the piece that we've been after. And then one of the sides goes, no, that's not how the real world is. So basically this is the happy ending version of warriors from the deep. (laughs) Yeah, basically kind of is. Yeah, Yeah. Kind of is. And you know, as much as that last line from Warriors of the Deep hits me, there should have been another way. The reason there should have been is because life should be better than it is. Yeah. Um, and that's powerful. And it's nice somehow. It's nice sometimes, though, and especially in a show like Doctor Who, to have the fantasy happy ending um, where you can. And which is what he did in Kill the Moon as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it was presented as a here are the options. Oh, but wait, here's we pushed a button anyway, and the moon and and, and giant dragon leaves a new egg. Storm yeah, that's moon. kind of his thing, isn't it? It's it's, it's his you thing. Know, truth and consequences. Like if we're gonna keep using that analogy, like hmm. he he likes to present people with a choice and then make them make it and then just show show them what the outcome is and thing. And um, and it turns out to be a good outcome. Yeah. It's always I, an Oscar box. It's always fake. <laughs> Now, I am going to interject here for a moment for listeners who haven't listened to Doctor Who, the writer's room before. Yes, that was them speaking highly of Warriors from the Deep. Warriors from the yeah. Deep. This this is, uh, what was it, two episodes ago or one episode ago? I forget. Two, yeah, two or three, something like that. One, I don't know. If I'm... <laughs> when we were talking about Johnny Byrne, that is a really, really well-written story that just gets, you know, uh, unfairly maligned because of the the kind of production that it has. Yeah, if I feel like that story would have benefited from if you just listen to it. Yeah, if that um, if that were a big finish story or something, it would be you know it'd be the spare parts or jubilee of big finish. It's such a well written story, and yeah. it's but it's it's right. It chip. That's a really good analogy. It's it is that sort of story. These stories where Doctor Who 
find itself talking about truly impossible political situations, um, which is exactly what Mac Hawk liked to do um, back in the day with Ellerians and Sea Devils and things. Only he, in a way, had the courage of having a downer ending. Yeah, he was just as idealistic as apparently Peter Harness is. He like yeah. you, the Doctor always speaks Malcolm Hulk's ideals, and you, you can kind of get the idea that he's always speaking Peter Harness's ideals, or you know, Harness and Moffat together kind of ideals. This is yeah. what the Doctor is, but yeah, it it. But uh, we're not the Doctor. We're just we're, yeah, and it's up to us in the end, and we're gonna screw it up somehow. Yeah. I kept waiting for the Zygons all to be killed. I thought that is the only way out of this story. Because you you can't having set up the metaphor and the analogies, I'm like, there's no way this ends another way. But they found another way, which yay, good for if that inspires some kids to work really hard at diplomacy, then yay, <laughs> you know, yeah. good for that. Although uh, then and we follow with we I keep wanting to call it Trap Street because I know that was the original name for the episode. But mm-hmm. in Face the Raven, um, a shielder makes the sour comment about how well um, assimilating is working out for the Zygons. So you get a little bit of that discordant note later on, but not within the episodes themselves. Yeah, she's also a horrible human being. (laughs) Is she even a human being anymore? (laughs) Yeah, and and she's not, I mean, she's not nice. I think this is, you know, maybe it's time we've already talked about Ashoda because she is the, she is the impossible girl of this season. She's the fantasy trickster whatever Moffat made who happens to be a female because aren't they always um whose identity is like key to the arch of the story and sort of Mm -hmm. reflects the doctor somehow she's not a nice person she's not a good person she's a she and Clara each sort of represent the danger of thinking you're the doctor when you're not yes you yes. know, of thinking you can be that figure when you don't have the intelligence, the experience, the two hearts, the bypass, respiratory bypass system, like all the things <laughs> that make the doctor the doctor. It's not just being, okay, I'm good with aliens and, and I'm, I'm a bit brave. It's like, it's more than that. Yeah. Um, and, and a shield in a lacks case, the heart. Yes. And the heart in the doctor's case is Clara or is the companion. And she doesn't have that. She is, she is on this path. She refuses to have that. She refuses to have somebody be with her. She refuses because she cannot get over the fact that they're all going to keep dying. Yeah. Um, But the doctor has accepted that and has companions anyway, because you need the companion. You need, you need that. Yeah. He needs grief. Grief defines us. And in Clara's case, she has become intoxicated. That happened a lot in series eight. What made me eventually like series eight was the, the whole, the the Clara kind of wanting to become the doctor thing. And they kind of allow her in the series to just be the doctor, or at least what in her mind is the doctor always doing what the doctor would, would think she's kind of, you know, in the beginning of that episode or, you know, early on in that episode, she's like hanging out the side of the TARDIS and just loves it. Like, she's just like, you know, I haven't a care in the world because I'm like the doctor. And it's, it's like, no, you are not. <laughs> yeah. you, you did not think this through at all. And it literally kills her. It, yeah, it does. And I think that Ooh. that was a good death for her because it was like it, she had hubris and then, uh, you know, she was Icarus flying too close to the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I thought that ended up being really good. And I did, you know, 
getting back to a shoulder, I think what works for her is cause she's in four episodes and each time we see her, she's much old, like centuries older, if not millennia mm-hmm. and centuries she, older and entirely different each time. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I was just about to say. She's, she is basically a different character every time we, we see her and she's getting colder and harder and more, you know, embittered, which is what the doctor would be if he were alone for a billion years, which is, I guess what he actually did. But, um, <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I thought she kind of came around in her in her last appearance. She not not so much embittered as just like older and wiser. You know, I guess if, yeah. If she, she, she lived to the point. end of the universe, yeah, she was well, to the that point where she depends heavily if you believe her or not. In that final scene, there's a lot of fan contention about how to read those final moments with me yeah. and Shielder and however the, how what it all means and did she actually literally survive forever or did she get there through other means and all sorts of jiggery pokery yeah um it, it she sort of at the end feels like whatever the plan was for her they forgot what it was almost like there was some idea of of what role she would serve in the end and then it ended up they just sent her off in the tardis with clara which is a nifty idea um are you talking about the writers lost the idea well, Moffat, I would say, Moffat, it's yeah. like because it's like Moffat wanted to have this character, and so they brought her back, and then they brought her back again, and he kept, and you know, if you're Catherine Tregenna or you're, uh, you know, Sarah Dollard. Sarah Dollard, thank you. I was gonna say Sarah Duncan, which I don't think is anybody. Sarah <laughs> Dollard, um, and you're, you know, you're told here's this character you're writing a story about. Her name's Ashilda or me or you know whatever, and so they write her. And but Moffat is the one who keeps insisting that this figure reappear. And I kept waiting for that to be important somehow, like actually plot wise important and not just thematically, because usually Moffat does both. Things are not just one or the other. And then she just appears at the end of the universe sitting in a chair. Okay, okay, I guess that's it. Um, And I kind of wanted at least one scene between her and Clara that would justify them spending hundreds of years together in a TARDIS roaming around the universe. Or well, I, th- I, I felt it was justified because, you know, obviously Clara wants to do some more in that final moment, you know, between heartbeats and a shielder has wanted a TARDIS f- since the beginning. She mm-hmm. wants to be able to, you know, the freedom that the doctor possesses that she did not have. I've, I've, that, that, I bought that like how she got to the end of the universe. I don't really care about, um, <laughs> Yeah. What you know? Who cares? Whatever. Don't I do not spend any time next is talking about that. I don't. That's not important. I'm but, sure there is tons of fanfic. Right. Which is fine. And you know, I can't wait for the big finish series. Me and me, starring Maisie Williams <laughs> and uh, Jenna Coleman. But um, it would be uh, called Who Me. <laughs> uh, There's so many different titles for it. Um, yeah. But I, I feel like she she didn't earn it. No, I, I I think she is not a nice person. But it's it's maybe the two sides of the doctor getting to go and be maybe two, the two of them together can be the the oh, uh, another version of the one doctor. Maybe they're the hybrid. We should address the hybrid question at some point. Yeah, that okay. is MacGuffiny MacGuffin of all MacGuffins. The MacGuffiniest MacGuffin ever. MacGuffin the MacGuffin. I was, <laughs> I was really, I, I annoyed is a strong term, but usually Moffat's whatevers are explained in the end. They might be a sort of unsatisfactory explanation. 
we still do not know what or who the hybrid is. And according to the Matrix, and according to what we're told about the Matrix, every single prophecy says the exact same thing, is that the hybrid will stand in the ruins of Gallifrey. Like, the doctor was very keen that the general not say many reports. is like, no, 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 no. Every single one says the exact same thing, and that it's this. And if there's one thing I know from reading a bunch of Greek tragedies, it's that you don't get out of your fate. If something's going to happen, it is going to happen. And it hasn't yet that I can tell. No, it did happen. Did it? Yeah. They, uh, whatever, you know, the hybrid was maybe just a prophecy, just a myth. But what, what counts is that it, the doctor doing what he did to try to save Clara when he can't w- did the same thing as whatever they prophesied hybrid was going to do. So it doesn't matter, you know, standing in the ruins of Gallifrey. That's where they were at the end. Oh, so, so literally it just meant you're just going to be alive long after Gallifrey's dead. No, but like the, the, the timeline was breaking down. Space time continuum was in shambles because of what he was trying to do. He was trying to outrun fate in, in a sense. I did not read. Also, so the scene at the end of the universe, you read differently than I did. Well, no, they say Interesting. it. Well, yes. Well, they say it we're at the end of the universe and everything, but I thought that was just happened because that was just entropy to its final extreme. Mm. And that literally nothing was left except for me in that chair. Yeah. And th- there was just nothing left in the universe and everything had died because that's what happens in the universe. Not that it was a universe that ended sooner or differently because the do- because of the doctor's actions. I always thought that the idea was that if he kept going, that the universe would have fallen apart yes that's that's basically but he that was on the trajectory to to become to self-fulfill to you know fulfill the prophecy and become the hybrid but he it that's what the mind wipe was for one of them was going to forget and then that would have that solved the issue basically either either he would be mind wiped and would stop trying to save mm-hmm. clara mm-hmm. or she would be mind wiped and she would be theoretically protected from the time lords which right. i didn't entirely buy there but yeah i didn't i didn't either but i but I, I go back to my point about greek about greek tragedy no matter what you do prophecies come true that's the thing about them when you know the future you cannot avoid it because everything you do takes you step a step closer to that and now i'm just not sure if if prophecies in moffat's doctor who are like uh, the time, uh, the space museum where they can change the future or whether they're actually set in stone and the hybrid is a thing that is yet to emerge. Because remember, we first heard about the hybrid from the master or Missy talks about the hybrid and she's still floating around somewhere doing something. Right. So it's distinctly possible this is not actually done. That's but if there is, too, if yeah. there is a, um, if there is a theme of Moffat who from series five on, it's that time can be rewritten. That is that is entirely true. Although that was true when there was no Gallifrey anymore. Yeah, I don't Although know how you much. could argue that it it it's more able to be rewritten now because the Time Lords are back. Was I forget when it's you know one of these episodes. I think it was one of the uh, David Tennant episodes. I think or or maybe who who knows it doesn't matter. He says you know if if the Time Lords were around they could have fixed X Y Z, but they're not. So blah blah blah. I, that's I actually, honest that's to God forget what episode in, that is. Uh, that's actually in uh, Father's Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of My course it is. My people would have fixed this. My people would have fixed this. Yeah, yeah. timelines would have fixed it and so you wouldn't have had the space 
the reapers time reapers yeah. yeah um but yeah i'm because i and maybe i'm just because so much of we thought we understood so much of what was going on in Matt Smith's period until Matt Smith's final episode, at which point everything was reinterpreted again in another way. Mm-hmm. Or Dave the Doctor, where Moffat reinterprets 50 years of Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, I'm holding off on final thoughts on the hybrid and a shoulder for now, at least. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it, I think within the context done, of the episode, but... it is, it works for me, but, mm-hmm. um, they very easily could bring it back. That's something else that Moffat does where he's, you know, he leaves threads open so that he can wrap them up later. Or like in the case of time and the doctor, just say, have a conversation around a table where they tell you all the answers to things. Well, I mean, how did the time Lords, uh, get Gallifrey out of its pocket dimension? You don't need to know that. No, <laughs> they just got it out of the pocket dimension. He said they're very clever, essentially, and that's all. That, that's all that matters is that they're smart and they figured it out somehow. Yeah. So, is that satisfying writing? Is that discipline? Like we're not going to go down this rabbit hole, or is that frustrating? I feel like there's some things that you just like can be, you know, big things like that where people are like, but I, you know, if you get caught up on that, then you're not having fun watching a TV yeah. show and. You know, for this story, for Heaven Sent and Hellbent to work, uh, Gallifrey has to be able to, you know, has to be back. And uh, I'm fine with that. You know, I don't necessarily need to know. And that's the kind of thinking that led to the Star Wars prequels. How how on earth did Darth Vader become Darth Vader? <laughs> and you now you've seen it and everyone you didn't wants want to, to know, it. did you? <laughs> yeah. So I feel like you can just make these kind of leaps, you know. The master's going to come back. She goes, I have an idea. Whether yeah. they're ever going to address that, who cares? What the idea was, who cares? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm with Kyle on this strongly. Uh, there's on the, I think it's the commentary for unearthly child. No, not unearthly child. I'm, I'm, I'm being silly. The empty child. Sorry, the empty child. Doctor Dance is not unearthly child. It'd be funny for unearthly child. Unearthly <laughs> child. Doctor Dance is Stephen Moffat in the scene where. Uh, Rose and I forget the girl's name are using the sonic screwdriver to repair the barbed wire. He says, yeah, mm-hmm. sonic screwdriver setting 527 or whatever, you know. And essentially it's, it's any task that could be achieved by the sonic screwdriver or sunglasses or could be explained by techno babble. You can omit that. Like, you know, I sometimes get very frustrated when they don't cover it with a line as it were, when it's a plot hole. But they did cover it with a line. The doctor said they got back somehow. He doesn't know how. He doesn't need to tell us. You know, do we need to know more than the doctor about how Gallifrey got back? No. Like, if he knew and we're like, oh, I know, but I'm not telling you, aren't I impish? That might be different. Not only um, does the doctor not know, he doesn't care, and therefore neither should we. Neither should we. The point is they're there. They're a fact yeah. now. This they're is the reality now. we're dealing with. Exactly. That they're back. Yeah, and so the people who sort of complain about the screwdriver and the sunglasses, I say, would it be better if he just carried around 500 tools in a giant, <laughs> yeah. larger, bigger on the inside toolbox he had in like an eyeglass repair kit? Would you prefer that? Because we could do that too. It's Doctor Who, whatever. Or he could just never open a door. Would yeah. you like that too? Like <laughs> <laughs> Every episode's him sitting in a room quietly eating soup. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, locks, my only weakness. Mm. <laughs> Um, real quick, uh, before we get to, too far away from it, I, I didn't get the chance to ask Kyle what his favorite non-Moffat script was. This oh, season. sure. Um, well, obviously, I thought the Zygon stuff was great, but I'll, I'm going to go with uh, um, Before the Flood, 
just because I thought that was a really cool and actually both of those two parters. You have the first episode um, under the lake, which is basically it's a ghost. It's a haunted house story. It's yeah. it's very simple. Uh, and you learn kind of mystery stuff and you're not sure who these ghosts are or why they're there, or blah, blah, blah. And then you have the next episode, which is not continuing that story. I mean, it's continuing that story, but it's not continuing that type of episode. And you go back in time. It's this weird kind of paradox situation or like figuring out things. And uh, and it is, in fact, a paradox. They open the episode with the bootstrap paradox. Uh, I love stuff like that. I think, uh, you know, Big Bang is a, is a really great episode because it's all causal loops. And I think that's really yeah. fascinating to think about. And this one was kind of like set up to be like, you are not going to f- understand why this all happened, but it all happened because it all happened. <laughs> and I, that they're kind of like big idea um, time travel theories because obviously time travel is theoretical it can't happen um it it, uh it makes my mind excited and so i thought that was a cool one because it you know you follow this dalek two-parter with a very atmospheric first part and then a very time travel heavy second part yeah no i i think i think the under the lake before the flood stories were good i think in a way, I don't want to say they were sort of simpler than the that Toby Woodhouse's stories were simpler than Peter Harness's, but they didn't have as much going on. Certainly, they were more they straightforward. Were, yeah. Yes, and they were uh, self-contained. It and was they were completely self-contained. They were yeah, and but they they were well done. They were um, well done. Yeah, they were quite well done. The the ghost elements uh, from the first part I thought worked very well. I was less enamored of certain, especially the resolution. I thought the resolution was a bit. I thought that Fisher King was a thoroughly uninteresting character. It was um, sort but of. But he had to, the scream of the guy from Slipknot. Don't you understand? <laughs> that was the most useless like cameo of all time. It was just, made that same effect with Frank Welker or a, yeah. a synthesizer. I just have it be the Wilhelm screen, um, <laughs> right? It's, there again, doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, or or what Goofy used to do. So it's, um, but I thought a lot of the elements worked very well. It, it it did feel a bit too neatly tied up together at the end, you know, all those sort of romances and, oh, we're in love, but no one said anything about it. That yeah, all yeah, felt yeah. a bit sort of overly tidy. Um, but I thought the story worked well, and I'm with Kyle. I loved the doctor speaking aloud in the TARDIS. I loved the fact people were like, he's talking to camera. I'm like, no, this doctor talks to himself in the TARDIS all the time. The camera is just happening to be there. You yeah. don't understand how the show works. <laughs> he did that. He did that in Listen. He just wasn't talking directly to camera. Yeah, exactly. It's like this is what he does, um, and he's and as a time traveler, he must be constantly fascinated by the bootstrap paradox because he encounters it all the time. Yeah, he's like, this is the history I know, but this history I know only turned out this way because apparently I was involved in it at the time. Yeah, and so it's like. <laughs> And that that's something really, you know, he set the Great Fire of London. He he didn't know that until he was the fifth doctor in the visitation, but turns out he did. That's the bootstrap paradox. Um, it's it's these things sort of that because we see happen, we have to do things in a certain way. And Moffat has long been fascinated by them. He uses them all the time, these causal loops. Um, and I think it was... It was Stretching all the know. way back to uh, the children, the, the comic relief special. Yes. Yeah. yeah, all the way back, all the way back. It's it's always been sort of his little thing that he likes about time travel in a way. 
Um, because it's so puzzle boxy. I think he likes that as Moffat is always, we have to once a podcast got referred to a Moffat script as a puzzle box. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's, that's a law. Yeah. yeah he literally law. wrote an episode, which is heaven sent, which is a puzzle box inside which is a puzzle, a puzzle box. box, which is inside a puzzle <laughs> box. Yeah. Um, and I think one of his weakest puzzle boxes, but that's probably just me. She, uh, but in this, I thought it was time that sort of the doctor finally said, look, here's what the bootstrap paradox is. Stop complaining about it. <laughs> like, this yeah. is just how it works. Yeah. And if you don't like it, you can go, what, Strictly Come Dancing or something. Fine, yeah. whatever. You know, it, this is just how it goes. Yeah, you know, he, 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 he talks to himself a lot. But throughout, and this is, this is not direction, this is writing. Throughout this season, this is the most meta season of Doctor Who we've had in ages. Right down to uh, the doctor playing Clara's theme on the guitar. Yeah. Multiple, uh, multiple instances of breaking the fourth wall. You know, I'm nothing without an audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which, which, which just wow. You know, the the first time I saw the boot, the opening where he's talking about the bootstrap paradox, I was kind of shocked because um, I am not used to it appearing like I'm being talked to by camera. We all, you know, we all laughed at William Hartnell for uh, wishing everybody a Merry Christmas. But this went beyond self-awareness to self-commentary. And I wonder what you two thought of that. I feel like since the 50th that it's kind of become that. where Because now more people than ever are aware of the history of the show. And we have in the form of Peter Capaldi, one of the biggest fans of the show ever. <laughs> he happens to be the lead character. So I feel like that it's just sort of built in. It might just be also, you know, this is Stephen Moffat's fourth series. It was possibly going to be his last one. If you believe those reports, um, this is uh, fifth series, by the way, is it? Yeah, you're right. It is. His Five, fifth six, one. seven, eight, nine. Yeah, you're right. Uh, so that's a lot of series for that man <laughs> to do. Um, so I feel like you just sort of, he he changes things up as much as he can and it's got he got to make it fun for himself and putting in all these little nods and things like that let's let's try this i think is kind of there's nothing wrong with that um yeah i enjoyed that yeah. type of thing and i think i think the writers you know cuz that was let's let's give toby withhouse credit for that because it is yeah, great his, it's it, great it does appear in his script um i and i maybe moffat dropped it and we'll never know those sorts of things but i do think you know, the writers would have seen season eight and seen how much the Capaldi doctor does talk to himself, does work things out out loud and not in a way that David Tennant did where all you heard was sort of like every fourth word, <laughs> which is what the Tennant doctor did, where he would work it out out loud, but you would actually only hear the conclusions in his head. Here you hear every step and sort of every point along the way. And I do think and that, of course, later comes back in um, Heaven Sent with the sort of idea that he's in his in his brain. He's in his TARDIS sort of working out the problem, trying to find the thing. And um, he's talking to Clara, quote unquote. She doesn't actually like yes. physically appear really all that much until the end. So I don't see like he, he could be talking to us, even though he's just addressing Clara like and, and in uh, 
before the flood, he's talking to camera, but he may as well just be talking to Clara in his brain again. Yeah. Like it's, 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 it all kind of just kind of works that same way, but it is absolutely jarring. I, I agree with you, Chip. First time I watched the beginning of that episode, it took me a few minutes. Like I had to rewind to listen to what he said. Cause I was too busy going, is he talking to the camera? Is that what's happening? <laughs> and it, it is indeed what was happening. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's them all trying to be like, Hey, we're having fun. We're having a good time here. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. all comment on the fact that we've done this 7 billion times at this point. Yeah. You know, there's, and I am, more. and I imagine that sort of indulgence is much more to your taste than, um, say stolen earth journeys in let's bring all the characters back. Well, that's, that is, is not, I was going to say fan service. It is a little bit that, but that's like. I want all of the th- things that I've created on screen at once. That felt very like um, self congratulatory to me. That's why I don't like that one. And, and, and also it's terrible. But <laughs> and the, just the distinction I would draw with that was bringing back all the characters is fine if you have a really good reason to bring back those characters and only those characters. Yes. As opposed to if it had been every companion of the Doctor from history on Earth. That would have been fine because they all had relations with the doctor too. Why weren't they kidnapped by the Daleks? But it's not. It's only the ones that this doctor had, and that's where it starts to get wacky. Yeah, um, it feels like it, it. It limits the show to only yes. being the, the stuff that has happened fairly yes. recently. I was I created the show in two thousand five. Only my people, um, and that's that's. Whereas here, and the thing is, if if the sort of talking out loud, talking to camera thing continues beyond the Capaldi Doctor, I'll be surprised. It feels like an intrinsic part of who this Doctor is as a person, that this is the kind of thing he would get away with in a way that the Matt Smith Doctor or the, you know, the Joanna Lumley Doctor next won't be able to get away with. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first. Um, (laughs) We've been going for a while. I haven't found out what your least favorite episodes of the season were. Oh, from, well, I don't think we know standpoint. where this is coming. Well, I, we I, is, it that, is it that easy? Is, it, is the it consensus is that, that broad? And there's a really good reason for it. This is, I've been waiting. Just let me talk for a few minutes. I've been waiting All right, let's for do this. it. It is, because, what is the episode that you and I both hate? Uh, well, it is Sleep No More. Of course. Of course it is. Kyle and I, along with Sean Homerig, host a podcast about horror movies. We love horror movies. We know how they're supposed to work. This didn't. And part of the reason is because it was badly written. Mark yeah. Gatiss, who is a man of many strengths and qualities and has done really great work in the past, and I'm sure will do a lot of great work in the future, decided to write a script that was found footage. And instead of using a really simple method of explaining why it was found footage, went out of his way to tie that intrinsically with the monster in the story, which I guess he thought would be less sort of meta, maybe? But it means nothing actually makes a lick of sense at the end. And and then we're laughed at at the end, because all we've seen is, is nothing. There's nothing. And- it, what we've watched was the monsters getting us to watch an episode of Doctor Who and them laughing at us about it. And now we're all dead. <laughs> That's yeah. what the end of the episode is. Yeah. No, and, it is. Yeah. It is. And... And the things that did not work in that in that episode, they're all writer choices. That yeah. is a case where it's like, it's really well directed. The scenes where it's sort of like dimly lit and you kind of see a shape moving, that works pretty well. Yeah. The acting could have been dealt with. Um, I sure. think Reese Shearsmith may not have been quite as easy to control as I wanted him to be. But the 
it's it's bad ideas. It's <laughs> it's bad ideas poorly executed by a writer. I kept uh, sitting there watching because you know, as Eric said, we do a horror podcast and we do a writer's podcast. So the, guess what? In theory, this episode should have been right up our alley. Yep. But there were all these times throughout. There were like signposts throughout the episode where I kept because I was like, all right, I'm not really into this, and I'm like. All you have to do is explain this properly or, you know, give one thing that makes all of what we've seen made sense. And every single time that came to that kind of crossroads, it he took the weird or completely dumb path. <laughs> it's eye booger monsters, guys. Do you understand? I don't care how well they're realized, you know, physically. There's no reason they shouldn't have been your dreams manifesting as monsters or uh, the Sandman actually being a thing and attacking you. Anything like that. Well, no, it's the fact that we can't sleep. Our eye boogers need an outlet. So they become ambulatory horse manure, my friends. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. And it makes them less cool to me. Yeah. Because you know what I'm not afraid of? My own eye crusties. Yeah. No, it's it's. It's a weird it's a weird case of a writer sort of having a very idiosyncratic vision and either because Moffat sort of generally a hands-off script editor generally which I think we've heard at first with him in the past specifically he is, and it's, but especially with Mark Gatiss, because I think they're such good friends and they work together on Sherlock I can't imagine any other script editor in the history of Doctor Who being being like you wait what like, I can see being like, sure, my friend wants to do a film footage thing. I'll let him do this, which kind of breaks the tone of Doctor Who to a certain extent. But fine. Doctor Who's about experimentation. Go for it. Yeah, I'm completely fine with the idea of doing an episode that's completely out of the beaten path like that. Yeah. But then to have, as Kyle says, essentially every choice be made along the way strange and off-putting and what? Like – why what why of all the things like i like the idea the basic premise of if you deprive humans of sleep there's something almost metaphysical that would happen like it's not just the body needs sleep it's like that the soul needs sleep or something yeah. like that's cool it's so cool yeah. and then it's eye monsters and yeah <laughs> and it has and, nothing to do with metaphysics at all it has to do with w- weirdly your own like but the only reason we have eye boogers is because our eyes are closed for long periods of time yes. and we have no way to wipe our eye. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, it's it's very strange. And then and then the ending, like it was it was a bad episode and then it became a dreadful episode with the ending. The the, the Nelson ha ha ending. Which comes as close as Doctor Who I think has ever come to it was all a dream. Yeah. I mean this is this is the Doctor Who version of it was all a dream. And no, I'm sorry, no. And just if- because you have Capaldi <laughs> say, but that doesn't make sense as he enters the TARDIS to end the episode, that doesn't get you out of the fact that none of it made sense. No, no, it doesn't. It, because the the whole thing is is built on a structure. If it were a weird, like, uh, surrealist episode that didn't make sense, then you can go, all right, this doesn't make any sense at all. But it's, it, you know, if they're in a dream or something, anything like that, where dream logic is is there. But it's not. It's built upon... To the point where there's a reason why we're seeing people's point of view it, and and there's no camera. That's like very belabored. And oh, my God, why is that? Oh, it's because they're putting something in our brain. Oh, my God. But and then like you get to the end and it, it just is like, what? And I was like, 
if the next episode, if, the, if at the beginning of, of Face the Raven, they'd have been like, boy, those eye boogers were sure weird. I'd have been like, <laughs> well, at least that had something to do with anything. You could excise that entire episode. It doesn't have anything to do with the theme of the whole series. It doesn't have yeah. anything to do with uh, character development. I mean, maybe there's a couple funny lines between the two, between the leads. Um, you could just take it completely out and nothing in this in the show is affected positively or or negatively. I guess it is positive. <laughs> just get the hell out of it. Yeah, if you take it out, there's another spot for anything. Just another, just anything. Yeah. Just anything. And maybe it was just because Face the Raven was so connected to the following two episodes. Um, so that kind of forms a, you know, a loose three-parter that you just needed. I need something that can stick in anywhere. But that, that has really felt like what Mark Gatiss's episodes are these last few years. It's his is the episode that can fit anywhere. And I don't like that when the rest of the series is so tightly constructed. Yeah. And it's so, so much building. I mean, we have that in series six when night terrors was supposed to be episode three and was moved to episode nine, eight or nine or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. It's like, is that good that you can just so, so malleably move this episode back or forth? I don't think so. Yeah, well, it it I think it's fine in a season like season seven, maybe, which is sort of like was all big ideas. It was all yeah. Um, but season six had a definite sort of clear arc, and season nine certainly had that. And then to have this story that is, as you say, not connected and not even good. <laughs> it 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 was frustrating and disappointing, and I yeah, I just it's. I guess it wouldn't be a season of Doctor Who without one story. You're all just like, blech. And I was, you know, you get to, you get to, you follow uh, the Zygon inversion, which we've already Mm -hmm. talked about was so good. Like both of those episodes were so good. And basically all season long, I'm going, this is, I'm, I'm digging all of these episodes. And then you get to this one. And not only do I just not like it, I like, I hated it while I was watching it. I more and more was getting angry while watching it. I have not watched it again. Maybe I'll watch it again and be less angry about it. But, and then, and then you get the next three episodes that are great again. It's like, uh, cool. <laughs> Thanks for making me mad for a week. Yay. Oh. So okay. Does that answer your question, Chip? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes, you did. <laughs> Before we wrap up guys, um, Eric, you mentioned in passing, you thought that, uh, Stephen Moffat's least successful puzzle box might have been Heaven Sent, which has been, as far as fandom's concerned, the fandom I follow online anyway, that episode has been beloved to the point of becoming, you know, fandom's whoopee, you know. (laughs) And I get the sense that you weren't as satisfied with that one. And I, I want to explore that for a little bit because, again... We've been talking about, you know, tour de force performances and outstanding direction by Rachel Talalay and stuff like that. Yeah. All of these evi- all of these elements that make Doctor Who really satisfying for some people. But let's actually talk about the story of Heaven Sent and whether you two thought that it was a well-written episode. Yes and no. I think some of the parts that people were praising are quite good and that, that includes um, some of the elements of the writing I do think this thing that we talked about earlier of the doctor winning and that being a theme that's explored in this, that he is willing to go to great lengths, not to give the time Lords what they want. Although he does not know it's the time Lords, although he does know it's the time Lords because he knows he's on Gallifrey. So at a certain point, he knows that the time Lords are keeping him hostage there and want to know, and he has to assume it's about 
the hybrid because it's the only thing anyone has been talking about this season. And he refuses because he will not lose to the Time Lords because he hates Rassilon. Fair. Interesting. Nice character development stuff. You're right. The performance is fantastic. Talalay's direction is amazing. That's sort of taken as, it's taken as red. It, it's the puzzle boxiness of it. And it's the literal boxiness of it to me. These elements of him having created this sort of path for himself. And, and my mind immediately though began to wonder, okay, what was, I was going to say the first doctor, but that's William Hartnell. The first time the doctor arrived in this castle, that's his confession dial. What did he experience and what did he encounter? Because there was a first one. There was one. We know because he was the one that was zapped in from Face the Raven. And at some point, what did he do to sort of know what was to come? At one point, there was only one skull in that moat. How did that process go? And I think in a way, Moffat, by having him be, you know, the first one we see is 7,000 years in, he kind of cheats it a bit. People have had issues with the, if everything else in the castle resets, why doesn't the wall reset to the original length, original depth, and not have the sort of little bit that the doctors hammered out with his ring? I I have that same question as well. It's It's those sorts of things, it's it's the very puzzle boxiness of it that when Moffat does it right, you don't have the questions. And this time, it's just a bit off, just a bit off for me. Yeah, I didn't have those same issues at all. Um, I mean, I, I, there are definitely things I thought about. Like, yeah, how did, you know, because you have the, 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 the dry clothes waiting there for him. What did he do? to put those clothes there did he walk around <laughs> naked for a while like is that what he did the first time i have no yeah. idea you know and when I, there I, was an, and when when bird wasn't written how you know how many like all these things that we find the doctor having encountered when there is no i am in number 12 buried in the garden well and we also don't know you know 7000 might be the first time he got to the end you know what i mean like he the more and more he does these things he starts repeating himself and then once he you know he might have died much earlier on before because because there weren't the things already set up so you know it takes maybe it takes him 7000 years to get to the point where he can find the wall and start punching it i feel like i i don't mind not knowing that stuff because we see so much more of it and yes I, i'm not trying to like hand wave it like hey, it's fine whatever but you know we did mention earlier in this podcast some things you don't need to know. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing like I personally don't need to know. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with seeing what we're seeing and just accepting for what it is because it is so much about the doctor and his state of mind. And the fact that he is unwilling to budge, he will kill himself effectively. We, I mean, we don't even know how many times per year he does this stuff. Yeah. We don't know how long he's, he's yeah. awake and, and alert each lifetime, but it has to be, you know, if in the end he's in there 4 billion years, even if let's say it, he lives in that castle a year, which I think is probably actually much, much, much less than. Yeah, absolutely. That's still 4 billion times he kills himself. That said though, part of my problem with this episode is, is the fact that immediately we're sort of like, oh my god, it's amazing. And I saw it after that had happened because I yeah. watched them a day later. And a dollar shorter. 
And a dollar shorter. That means nothing. Please continue. <laughs> no, nothing at all. Um, and there was no way. The episode literally could have been like my all my best friends in a room just waving at me in the TV and then the TARDIS landing and taking me to the moon. Like it could have been the best thing ever for me and it would have fallen short of the praise it had received. And that's that's sort of just a, like a, a side effect of the online world. My feeling, though, is over time – fandom will come to me as opposed to me moving to fandom on this one my gut tells me that over time people will be like you know that was really cool though maybe something of a missed opportunity because i think kyle's right what's important is the sort of character study of this doctor and what he's willing to do and maybe there was a slightly different way of going about that that would have gotten at the same result that wouldn't have led to minor yet significant sort of stupid logistical question about like why doesn't the diamond wall reset itself if everything in the castle resets itself why does the diamond wall actually show the effect of his past actions if everything in the castle resets itself why does it reset itself to the point where the first iteration of the doctor has already been through and left all these things around like the clothes and like the i am a number 12 why shouldn't it be completely pristine the way we have to assume it was when the doctor first showed up but like i said they're niggling i yeah. had the reason i the reason i expressed them is because i had them as i was watching it and a good moffat puzzle box story i don't have those until maybe afterwards if i have them at all mm. yeah and you know if we look at like the things that don't reset so like the picture of clara which yeah. has been aging for however long yeah. the clothes uh, the grave and what's been written there and the bones, I guess, cause they're just m- multiple bones, but then it's, it's also like, it's his confession dial. So maybe mm-hmm. he is slowly like the time Lords have put him in there, but he is like figuring out a way to get out type of thing. I, think, I don't, I mean, it's, there's all these, there are a bunch of answers, you know, unanswered questions. Yeah. But for me, I mean like while watching that episode, I was captivated. I was uh, enthralled and I didn't mind not knowing certain things. Yeah. I, I actually think you're getting at something that would be probably the sort of idea that it's his confession dial. So therefore it presents itself in the form of a doctor who problem essentially. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that there is an escape at all, which why would there be an escape in some sort of prison? What they don't, there doesn't need to be one is because he set himself essentially knowing it's almost like he knew the confession dial might be used against him some way. And so he built his own confession dial to be not only a trap, but also a trap that has an escape. And Just, and it is, you know, the, the thing following him around is the thing that has haunted him in his nightmares. And, yes. you know, a lot of people talked about, not a lot of people, but it was brought up that like, well, that's not particularly, you know, it's, it's it's not really scary but it's like again it doesn't need to be scary to us it's scary to him mm-hmm. and so all of this is about him and so maybe maybe he is you know through just constant repetition he is affecting the confession dial and even rassilon says in the next episode like we would have let him out he just needed to tell us the answer yeah. and it, you know the doctor's even outsmarted them and he's outsmarted himself because he doesn't realize that he's doing anything until he gets to the end and he's punched the wall. You know, he can see that the, the diamond, whatever it is that they called it is, has been pecked several times. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure at that point he's like, yeah, I've done this. 
62 trillion times or however many times it ends up being. Yeah. Um, there are enough variables that it's, it's not, and maybe that is the problem with the puzzle box aspect of it is that it's not all neatly fit together, but there are variables that, um, nobody can explain. And I'm, I'm okay with that. It's not just like he didn't tell us ergo it's, it's like a missed opportunity. Like we don't know what a confession dial does. You know? No, no, that's confession fair dial isn't a thing. So like we, there are no rules I think in a confession dial. No, that's true. But the fact that the story takes place in the confession dial at all was a decision by Moffat as opposed to there was nothing saying that the form this that a one hander 11th episode character study for the doctor that shows them in a dark place needed to be even a confession dial and there's a boogeyman and there like it could have been done in any number of ways i think it's interesting that moffat chose this way and it kind of does go to his puzzle boxy nature his his way of thinking of stories as sort of components that fit together um well, but I, at- I would have maybe liked to have seen and this is me now sort of riffing generally I would be interested to see if you had given another writer the remit, essentially, of you have one person, you have Peter Capaldi, you have one episode, here's what it needs to be about, kind of go write something. And I that's the sort of thing where what other writers would have done maybe would intrigue me more than what Moffat did. What Moffat ended up doing, I liked well enough. I just did not think it was, which everyone yeah. else was. And maybe it's just because it's, it is so different and it was just bonkersly well directed and and yeah. i think and that final like 15 minutes of that episode it's it's a long episode the final 15 minutes or so is just a montage of him doing it a billion times which but there's I interesting things it was too long yeah um let's look at let's <laughs> for a second let's look at the big bang okay because that's mm-hmm. another one of those that's like intricately blah 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 plotted yeah we still there's there's still the big hanging thing of that it's like why is the tardis exploding we yeah. truly never know and it's never it's, explained even at the end it's somehow the silence somehow <laughs> yeah, it's yeah i mean that's like because time war like it's that's that level of yeah you no know, it memory. is and so like to me like that it, they're on the same par like because confession dial you know everyone's been doing that since the show came back in 2005 hmm. maybe anyway so that's that's where i am with that <laughs> eric stadnick iconoclast <laughs> yeah oh man we have been going for an hour and 30 minutes and you know there's any number of stuff that we could continue to talk about series mm-hmm. nine and this is this is why doctor who the writer's room will keep going and going and going on and at least wise because we have 45 stories or whatever it is left to cover <laughs> right right uh, a wealth of material but i think we need to move toward the close and so i think to borrow the phrase from verity we're getting to the time of final thoughts about series nine and how well it was written and whether it deserves the praise that it seems to have gotten from um, from the fandom community. For me, yes, it's I'm still in the bubble, as it were. Um, in, a, in a few months, I'll probably revisit it, maybe even as much as nine months, like right before the new series starts or whenever that ends up being. But as of right now, I do. I, I was heartily impressed by everything like and just on an episode to episode basis, it's I, every, I go into every episode of Doctor Who being like, just don't drop the ball. And 11 out of 12 times for me, 
it didn't drop the ball. You know, it ranged from, you know, like a, a solid B up to an A plus, I think across the board. And, um, as we've already just established, like writing is where I start, or at least story is where I start, uh, my enjoyment of anything. So I, really liked everything and even even the ones that weren't quite as didn't go quite as high were still of a very even keel type of quality yeah no i i do think it was very solid the thing i'm going to take away from season nine it was largely was in a way i'm going to draw the parallel between seasons one and two of the revised series season one you had rose and the doctor having sort of a very intense relationship and she brings him to the place where when he regenerates, he regenerates into someone who essentially can't be happy without her. You know, whether that's a trick of regeneration or just a writing decision, whatever it is, that season two, Tenth Doctor and Rose pairing is so intense that when it's split, essentially the Doctor never recovers. And it seems like with this, Moffat's done a very similar thing with the Twelfth Doctor that he initially with Clara, they have a very spiky relationship, but... And, you know, ending with a very intense showdown in, in season finale for series eight. But when they come back together, that sort of healed rift is so intense. It's just like kind of Ten and Rose. You've now removed Clara from the equation, literally by stripping her from his mind. How does this doctor carry on without her when she has been so essential? And is it actually going to be better that he forgets her because it means she'll have you can't miss what you don't know is never there sort I, of, uh, I think that that's exactly it he's yeah which which will be interesting will this make it sort of the season that ended up sort of almost being wiped <laughs> in a weird sense from the doctor's character and does that mean if it's wiped from the doctor's memory does it end up being sort of wiped from the collective consciousness of viewers because it ends up not leaving a mark on the doctor or you know and then we still have missy floating around so i'm right yeah i'm i'm definitely intrigued where it goes from here which is sort of i'm kind of in the way i'm exact opposite of kyle and that it's not don't drop the ball it's do i want to see what happens next mm, sure it's an, and i still want to see very much what happens next so yeah well done this has been a great conversation that has been the antithesis of my usual um format <laughs> And it has been so much fun having you guys on here. Um, Kyle and Eric, where can people find you if they want to hear you talk about classic Doctor Who episodes? Uh, you can find our podcast at dwtwr.libson.com. That's Doctor Who the Writer's Room. And uh, all of our back episodes are there. We do an episode a month, uh, but you can go back and listen to everything else we've done. We've covered quite a few writers. We've done, as we said, Malcolm Hulk. We did most of Terry Nation, all of his Dalek stuff. We've done a whole episode about Robert War Holmes, Games. Yep. War Games. Yeah, I've done all uh, sorts of things. We did a whole episode a year ago on Ghostlight. Yes, we did. So we only, we only do seven doctor stuff in December, apparently because <laughs> <laughs> they're presents to us all. Okay. And Kyle, you also are the resident doctor who expert as well as the weekend editor at the Nerdist. That's right. Yeah. So I wrote reviews of all these episodes that we've just talked about. If you want to go back and read them, uh, they're at nerdist.com. I also wrote three episodes of an after show and was on them. If you want to check those out, those are on, the youtube channel and that's called the doctor who companion um when we talked about face the raven heaven sent and hellbent um so i would i would highly recommend if you're into such things uh, going and checking those out because i worked really hard on those and i'm proud 
Awesome. Uh, gentlemen, I appreciate it. Thank you all so much. I have been Chip, and you've been listening to the Two Minute Time Lord podcast at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com or numeral Two Minute Time Lord on social media. Thanks for listening. Be back soon. Mm-hmm.